no, I just started. hit it just now. Okay. So it's time for Mahar to say, it's been a while. Oh my god, I was just about to say, it's been a while. <laughs> but, it, but it has been a while. Yes. Okay, so welcome to Trying to Be Kind, a podcast that looks at academic texts or TTRPG academic texts under an academic lens. Why? Because for some reason we had to. I'm beginning. <laughs> this book has uh, destroyed all reasonability in my brain very early in my in my morning. But what was the book? The book is Otaku, Japan's Database Animals. And it was published way over in 2001, first serialized, and then produced into an actual book collected into English by the University of Minnesota Press by Hiroki Azuma. And uh, since we're going to might, we might talk about this later, and translated by Jonathan E. Abel and Shion Kano. So if you've been following us for the past few months, we've been reading this book, and this is our ultimate episode, I believe, on this book. And But before yes. that, we need a question, y'all. We need a question so that you can get the erudite thoughts of the people you're going to be listening to. Well, erudite in well, quotation marks. That's what these questions are for? <laughs> <laughs> so it's Halloween next week, y'all. What you're wearing? And who are you, of course? Oh, <laughs> well, I'm Jared, and I've I've been thinking about rewatching this movie. So I think I think I would go as Pee Wee Herman if I were going as any. Oh, but I've been thinking about rewatching Pee Wee's Great Big Adventure. Paul Rubens, uh, rest in peace. Yeah, 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 yes. But yeah, I think Pee Wee's Big Adventure might be a perfect movie. Like I've tried to find fault with it, and I can't. Jared, um, seriously. Yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna watch it again oh my and goodness. see if that's still true. But yeah, I think Pee Wee Herman because that would be fun. You get to do the ha, you know, the you get to honk. Okay, all right. So. How about the others? What do you think you'd be going as for Halloween? I honestly haven't thought about it that much. <laughs> but Fiona, you work in a university. You're surrounded by youth. You know, you 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 have all these people around you who have dreams and think they can be members of society. Can I just say though, as someone who works with like younger kids, if I see one more Elsa, <laughs> I swear Elsa. I'm going to let go of them in in my heart. I'm like, no, you're you've, you're lost <laughs> to me. I have let go. I don't know you anymore. But I was telling everyone else that I would like to. Oh, by the way, I'm Mahar, and I would like to go as Jennifer Coolidge as Galadriel simply because I saw it on Instagram and now I need to do it. I need to do it. I need to I need to I need to drift into the west. <laughs> I need to do really stupid things. Yeah. I already have the wig and everything. I'm so happy. I want to see video of this happening. <laughs> yeah, that's probably going to happen. I'm prob I'm 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 going to spend today looking for a white caftan. Cuz I have the oh. crown and I yeah, have Yeah, you got to be able to find that. I need to find a white, but it's my size. That's the problem. I live in a country where everyone's so dang thin. Mm. 
like to them, 2XL is, oh, it's a kaftan. And I'm like, that's not a kaftan. On me, it's a sausage casing. So, oh, no. <laughs> so, I'm, <laughs> so I'm looking for, I'm looking for my, I'm looking for my Galadriel flowy robe moment. And oh, then I I'll hope be you fine. find it. Yes, yes. How about you, Fiona? Any idea for Halloween? Hi, I'm Fiona Maeve Geist, and um, I'm going as Power from Chainsaw Man because one, I need to buy new shoes, so I'm just going to get sneakers that match the design, and otherwise, it's black slacks, a white button up that's tapped in halfway, a black tie, and devil horns, which I might already have. Perfect. I mean, yeah, the shoes and- look awesome. Those shoes look like a really good pair of white kicks. Yeah. Also, I think like it makes it easy for me to be an autistic person at a party since power is like both incredibly rude and like incredibly unlikable. I've not actually watched Chainsaw Man. You should watch Chainsaw Man. It's about how perverts should win at life. Oh, wow. (laughs) What are you trying to tell me? (laughs) What do you mean I should watch it? It's like, Everyone should watch it. It's one of my favorite series. Like it and Mashoku Tensei are like the two things that I actually like watching that are currently airing. Oh my goodness. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Emma, have you thought about what what did your uh, Halloween costume be? Uh, Well, I haven't had a lot of brain for thinking lately, Mm -hmm. so... One of my go-tos is years ago, I made a skunk costume. So I kind of just dress up like a skunk and become a, a terrible person for the night. <laughs> I, I just thought of one thing for you. What's that? You should go as a rice molecule. Oh my God. A starch you, grain? <laughs> you should go as like a grain of starch. You should just wear become my research you should become your research you should wear like it should be uh, it should be several layers of clothes and then as you like <laughs> and then as you like get you know get to when you're near stimulating conversation you feel polished and so <laughs> you get like you know you take off your like brown structure first and then that's a kind of endothermy thing and then after that you get rid of it and then you're like oh look i'm a grain of white rice i've been so polished by your conversation Mahar, i'll just you know how you know that you're a theater kid how <laughs> you're talking about having an elaborate multi-layer costume yeah. that is high concept <laughs> and involves doing a performance just to interact with people at a party yeah, and my first thought is, oh, I could just get thoroughly fermented throughout the night. <laughs> you, you end a sake. <laughs> yeah. Look, look I, I am a theater kid. I'm sorry. <laughs> I respect it. Like, I'm not saying it is, like, I look, I work near, like, multiple theaters. Theaters are great. Yes, you're, you're, you're apparently in, like, a drag queen, um, like, summer drag queen apparently in the summer drag queen shows are a staple in your town yes providence is basically the like one of the few u.s cities i've been to that has multiple like gay coded areas you know in terms of actual businesses i think we actually have two bathhouses still wow 
Go back to the 80s. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, speaking of going back to the 80s. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I was like, segue time. (laughs) This this book. This book. Okay. So, we've we've covered the whole idea of being animals last last time, which honestly was a lot of fun. uh, If only because it was able to let me be as snarky as possible. But now (laughs) we... screaming. (laughs) small joys uh but now we're entering this chapter on hyper flatness and i'm gonna say that this just went over my head so much like it's not a very good or interesting chapter yeah i'm and as an editor summarizing the html part cuts almost all of the chapter yeah and the 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 thing about i do want to say for our viewers who aren't reading along at home like this is this chapter almost feels like an appendix. Like it's not, it's not central to the argument of the book, and it doesn't present itself as such. He even kind of says at the start that like, okay, let's just talk about some stuff. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I like, have here's some of my thoughts. It was like the yeah. was chosen, <laughs> and then he wrote the thing he wanted to, and then he realized, oh shit, I never talked about databases. And yeah. you know, like just a quote. This is where it went over my head because I'm like, is this really what you thought this was all about? Uh, to <laughs> in this present chapter, I wish to depart from theoretical discussions and instead yeah. offer some thoughts on how the postmodern world exists on the surface level, and on the kind of athe- uh, on the kind of aesthetics that govern the works and circulation there. If the previous chapters were the uh, were theses on postmodern analysis, the present chapter previews their application. And I'm like, their application? Oh, is that really? what this was? Is that okay. what this was? <laughs> I was like, uh, and then he starts delving into HTML. And I'm just and, like, yeah. okay, isn't that such a 2001 thing? I love that he took so long to tease out the distinction between internet and World Wide Web. Oh, like, it's, it's like, like my favorite thing in this whole book. And then he immediately, after spending a full paragraph on this, immediately is like, but I'm just going to call it the internet. Get over it. You know, yeah. It's like, no, but seriously, it's like, I just, I, I don't know. Maybe I was, maybe I've been like trying to contextualize this. And I was like thinking, you wrote this during the dot-com bubble. I'm like, I think yeah. people know HTML is a simple programming language. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Just one, it's not a programming language. It's a scripting language. And that so, matters. Yeah. I say putting on my steampunk goggles by having a lot of answers to things in this chapter. And I don't want to. You know. So it's like HTML principle specifies the logical relationship among the elements within its page and their visual expression is left up to the user environment. So basically he then continues on to say that at the end of the day that, uh, you know, we should think of this limitation not as a flaw in the source code, but as an indication of the fact that the world, the world of the web operates under a completely different logic than that of print media. So to simplify my explanation, let me introduce a dichotomy between the visible and the invisible. So after he like talks about what the World Wide Web is, for us poor, you know, Luddites, Luddite readers. It's not a series of tubes. (laughs) (laughs) And the tubes can get jammed. No, (laughs) basically it's like, he tries to explain how the World Wide Web under a postmodern lens is basically the idea that um, 
when we write a text ourselves, a dominant approach is to think of it as pouring meaning into concrete strings of text. So it's from what I understood, it was basically like, there is something behind what you see. <laughs> right. Yeah, like that's basically it. There's, there's something you see about, and something you don't see. There's much ado about the fact that, right, like to summarize this chapter more effectively than the author, which is still me trying to be kind, HTML is a scripting language in which you can use a bunch of like operators to create a relationship between text that renders into the environment of another user's computer because it stores data more effectively. Your computer does all the stuff where it draws up the screen and does a bunch of things. Mm-hmm. All they send is a bunch of script that incidentally contains all the text. You know, and in early dot mm. com bubble internet that he's kind of into talking about, especially with his previous examples, he's really interested in how the internet starts getting databases. You know, like Wikipedia is just a massive database in that every Wikipedia page uses basically the same like mounting or whatever the right term is. I do not work in tech. I just understand enough about how computers work. And, you know, like there's an enormous database of all the stuff that goes into those relationships because it's broken up into headers and stuff. And it would be extremely time consuming to endlessly write over and over again what a header is by defining it on each page. Yeah. And it allows you to have a lot more information. Specifically, I think what he's trying to emphasize here is like in the case of a website, there are multiple expressions of that website available to us. Like we can have the graphic, the graphic version of it enabled by a browser. We can look at the HTML directly, or we could look at the ones and zeros of the binary, right? We have all of these different ways of expressing that website. And for him, and uh, this is what he's, I think what he's getting at with the hyperflatness situation is those things are not uh, hierarchical. They exist and, and they don't, they don't obviate one another, right? So they they all exist. They are all different and non-exclusive ways of looking at this thing, this sort of invisible database that is the website in question. Um, and so there's, I, I, I guess he's trying to tease out the fact that that sort of, that has some pleasant parody with what he's been saying in the previous chapter for so long. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't, I don't know. I'm not sure it does anything. It just sort of lays there. It says, um, it, it yeah. confuses several different things. I think his original description of invisible and visible in the writing process and comparing to what he calls traditional print media <laughs> is not quite right to me. I got kind of pissed about that. I drew some little diagrams to try and <laughs> figure it out. But the original description of the, in- the process of like creating a text was taking like your internal thoughts and experiences, the invisible and making it visible for others to see And then the process of consuming that is reading the visible and trying to reconstruct the invisible or all of the motivations and thoughts and intentions of the writer. But like, then switching gears to saying like the invisible exists within the technology of sharing your writing, then shift scales in my mind. Like, I don't think there's that big of a difference between 
someone creating something to be read online versus someone creating something to be read through traditional media. It's just... Especially since there's reprints, there's different prints. I got his book through a PDF. I also wrote, like, what would he think about the fact that I'm reading his work now as a translated reprint via PDF that I got online? (laughs) It's it's just so... I don't understand what... Because it's like, he's arguing at least from what I understand, and please correct me if I'm wrong. I'm fairly sure I'm wrong here, but it's simply because it's <laughs> its really me trying to read this over and over again, and it gets just so... I guess it's very floppy writing, if only because it's like he doesn't pin anything down, and then he just keeps on referring back <laughs> to something that he assumes he's explained before in the previous text. Yeah. So I'm just kind of like... you. You know, when you read back through it, I even try to go through the index afterwards, and I'm like, but that's not what you said. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, uh, that's, I just remember thinking, this feels like someone who's having a conversation with himself. And of course, he remembers having had a conversation, but he's never actually had the conversation, but the conversation <laughs> exists anyway. And maybe that's why he's there. <clears throat> anyway, so he then continues on to this notion of like hyper flatness, which I still don't honestly understand. Um, basically like it's the lines of what exists in the parallel layer. So like the characteristics of the worlds of the web, computer games, and software, moreover, the postmodern world in which we live can be captured in the word in quotes, hyper flatness. This expression refers just as it sounds to a characteristic that is thoroughly planar and yet transcends the plane. The hyper flat world represented by the computer screen is flat and the same lines line up what exists beyond in a, in a, in a parallel layer. So he basically then talks about a screenshot of the desktop computer he's using. He has three expressions of data on it side by side. One is the cover image of the conversations on the website. I still find it really funny that this image is created with a drawing application called Adobe Illustrator. This is Adobe Illustrator's HTML base. This is so 2001. <clears throat> And the figures in the image are all numerically specified by coordinates and vectors. So consequently, this file can be opened as a text file consisting of numerous such commands as well. And then he gives a text file. And then even and then he then explains that this text is not the true form or the original file because this uh, computer processes a string of binary and not the characters themselves. Thus, we can display the same file in yet another method. So basically, it's almost like, hey, look, we have many ways in which you can look at this one single thing. And um, basically at the end of the day, it's true form are the binary numbers. And then, uh, and then this other form is all of the text commands. And then the final, uh, the other interpreted form, interp- interpreted form, interpreted, I'm not sure if that's an exact word, <laughs> is, um, is Adobe Illustrator. And thus it's like, it becomes flat in the sense that you can all grasp an interpretation of it through parallels. So I'm like, eh, so what's the point? I'm like, <clears throat> but also he completely forgot about the words themselves, the important part for interacting with ideas. Yeah, it's <laughs> weird to me. Like I, I find the argument pretty uncompelling um, here, this particular argument um because it's like like i have an english degree you know and like everyone who's been through an undergraduate program in english i have had a teacher stand in front of the classroom holding a copy of c spot run 
and been like, okay, let's do a Marxist reading. Let's do a new historicism reading. Let's do, mm. you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like we, of course we have different ways of reading this. Like this is <laughs> right. And, and so you, in order to really make this kind of argument work, I think you'd have to tease out that like, these are not interpretive lenses. These are materially different expressions like physical they're not they're non-physical demonstrably but you, you know what i mean like they they have an objective reality as an expression of the thing the website versus the text versus the binary yeah so um, i'm just that's I'm, not interpretive in the way that like you know doing yeah. different readings of a text is but yeah I, i'm not certain that's actually a useful distinction well, it almost feels like he has okay this might be unfair of me i think this is very unfair of me this is me trying to be kind. This is, oh, that's so hard. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's like, for someone so postmodern, this is a very structuralist way of arguing your point. So it's like, not not to be like nerdy about this and okay but <laughs> not to be nerdy on this book podcast about this book podcast it's like <laughs> it's Mahar like is not a nerd i'm trying not to right but it's like to me okay to me at least my experience of postmodernity is postmodernity is trying to look at how meaning is created through the amalgamations of what makes meaning meaning so basically it's like, oh, look, it's a response to modernity. It's a response to saying that we have to have what, all these form structure or whatever, but what actually dictates the dynamics of that. So that's why you get like this codians out there being like, well, it's all about power. And it's all about this Like that, that and, you know, and Gramsci and Althusser and all those, those people are like, oh, yes. But then his argument, <laughs> his argument feels like post-structuralist. His argument feels like, He's questioning how interpretive structures are argued. Like he's basically trying to say that, well, actually, no, it's not even post-structuralist. It's structuralist. He's basically saying, this is how power is made. This is how we can find phenomena in, in behavior and we can count everything. Like you can literally count every single instance and then create an, an objective-like list Mm. right it's like it's like oh look we it exists we counted it because we've counted it it means that you can say what it's like so like yeah. we'll find all versions of the story of the little mermaid and then we can distill the essence of the little mermaid you know it's it is it yeah. is it is like you know it's a very anthropological dare i say it way of putting things well not even modern anthropology it's a no. very 60s way of anthropology you know, yeah, there's a lot of assumptions being the, made and then yeah. they just start snowballing from there. So yeah, the assumption I, here is that the traditions and the way of the world have dramatically changed, if not fallen apart, because yeah. there's yes. a lot of glorifying of how things used to be. Yes. And then yes. a lot of painting what now exists as deviant. And I have ranted many times on this podcast about how you don't know enough about human past in order to be saying these things. There's a reason why people don't... I'm like... I'm kind of like dying inside at this application, quote unquote, of his thing. Because now, Fiona, I think this is your favorite part. Because he then delves to explain how how this a very good example of this is the girl game you know 
Yeah. Can I point out one thing before we get into go, that? Go, go, go. I just noticed that that image of the hyperflat computer desktop is him working on a book cover. So I'm wondering if this was a not so subtle plug for another book that he was working <laughs> on. <laughs> I didn't notice a book cover. I just thought it's oh my called God, an it over, his name on it too. Yeah, overvisualized world by Hiroki yeah, Azuma. Oh Yasuda. my God, that is true. Okay, well, <laughs> anyways, okay, wait. Wait, while you while we continue on that, like I'm gonna do a quick search. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. The whole his last example of this girl game and how it represents everything that he's been talking about was entertaining, if nothing else. Oh my god, does the book exist? <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. I, okay, okay. So yeah. So <laughs> this broke this book broke me guys <laughs> it really did and then yeah so he goes on to say this and then yeah and so <sighs> <sighs> it's just it's so i just i'm having a hard time understanding this entire thing I really am. Like, this is the part of the book. I don't know if it's because I'm exhausted with it. I don't know if it's because I don't know all of the context in it. Because he's name dropping all of these, like, titles. He is going back to premises, which we've already discussed, I don't think are proven. Yeah. And then, and then he basically says that at the end of the day, um, yeah. Like, at the end of the day, we are just looking at stuff which are looking for more things at the same time. <laughs> that seems to be the, the, the thesis statement. To be otaku I, is, is to have, is to be, to be many things at the same time, but you're flat. Including mentally ill, apparently. Including mental, well, he's done that before, right? He's, he did that in yeah. a previous chapter where he just argues about how yeah, I, this is beginning to depress me. Someone pull me out of it. <laughs> so to pull you out of it, you know, let's just jump on the... I mean, I think the interesting thing to me is that this is very a uh, David Brooks slash, like, Thomas Friedman slash Slizhov Zizek, you know? Like, it, it has just enough ideas that it qualifies as something approximating scholarship, and it has one <laughs> term that I actually think is kind of provocative, but simultaneously, I don't know if he ever lands any part of it. Admittedly, that Zizek had a massive career out of doing that. Never has written a good book, has had 40 years to do it, and has failed 100 times. <laughs> Put that on someone's tombstone. <laughs> Look, I don't He's pretty prolific for a while there, too, and never managed it. Yeah. Um, Could you imagine? He failed, but made money. Never <laughs> stuck the landing, but he did great. <laughs> I, yeah, like because there's this weird kind of hovering idea that sticks with me of like, I get that he's making a hyper flatness argument of like, right? It, it's the argument everyone made in the 2000s, right? The world is flat because ultimately between fiber optic cable and data storage and everything else, like everyone can access 
everything always at once. And also that like, there's this weird subculture he kind of is interested in. And I swear he probably would have done better if he had just said that he's talking about like deeply forum posters more than anything. Yeah. Where it's like, look, I can, while I'll be accused of a lack of ethics in games journalism or similar forum users on the whole actually do have a lot of mental health problems. I say as a former forum user, it, it, there's not usually a good correlation between things going well in your life and anonymously posting on the internet. Sure. Um, but also I, the like kind of completionist subculture he's interested in since his examples are people who play like, you know, girl games and 100% them, which is a huge time sink. Even if you're speed running it, um, there's a very long Tim Rogers movie you can watch about how hard it is to do a Kentucky <laughs> Memorial. <laughs> how it basically is Dark Souls, but harder. But, you know, like, there's kind of something weird about him being like, yeah, all this. Let me tell you about my erotic girl game that has very clever game design that I like and that explains all of this. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he really does like this game. I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, I think honestly, we're at the point where let's because right now, honestly, this this application chapter and and all it it just it just refers back to him reinforcing the theory of this point. I don't really think he does a good job. Whether it's the fault of the translation, we can get into that later. Whether it's Mm. the fault of the translation or whether or not it's um, just him, (laughs) I don't think this is a very successful chapter that says you can apply my my earlier theories which all made me you know made me pull my hair out um my hairline is demonstrably higher since we first started reading this book Uh, (laughs) i'm definitely grayer (laughs) mine but mine is hair like you know i used to have a forehead now i have a six head um it's just it's just (laughs) so it's just really just like dude what's up who hurt you that is my question right now that like seriously like what is that is that's where we're at um normally i think we see how texts influence existing design and how otaku culture because i entered this project like now that being now that i'm being reflective i entered this thinking i would like to understand otaku culture knowing that it really influences existing games like mm-hmm. from our TTRPG space, like what was that thing that Fiona said once? Everyone starts a campaign thinking it's going to be Lodos. Yeah. And, and it ends up being what? <laughs> it ends up you being. Know, some, choose your own answer. Something of <laughs> your own invention. You know, it becomes something else, other, other ridiculous media. And um, I don't think I understand it now <laughs> because I just think. <laughs> is this what it really is or what or was it even like this in its actual time and that's, yeah that's what i very much wonder and fiona just said this that there's a clear subculture within otaku that he has focused on and kind of admitted that near the beginning but it's like then you're not talking about otaku you're talking about a specific subgroup and like 
clearly uh, like missing from all of this is all of the femme nerds of the world. Yeah, well, no, he's exactly. only interested in young men who are alienated and online yep. and very obsessed with anime girls, and that is yep. what he wants to talk about. Yeah, I mean, seriously, like nothing. Not that I have anything against anime girls, but. <laughs> It's almost like to be otaku is to be like, I hate to say this. It seems like he's describing otaku as nascent incel. Yes. I think he's very explicitly saying that. Yeah. You know, it's like, and why is that the case? Like how, (laughs) like, it's, it's so sad, really. And I find that, you know, maybe to end on a more positive note, do you think that let's assume in good faith that this is an accurate representation of how the world understood otaku to be at the start of this century. My, that's a oh, huge how people understood cr- it to be. Or, yeah, that's a or understood it to be. But like, I'm I'm trying to be good faith here. Let's assume that he was accurate at some point. Oh my god, that's okay. So <laughs> okay. I think he very much represents a faction of thought on yeah nerd culture in general especially in like 1980s 1990s japan where there was a lot of moral fear about isolated youth becoming weird and dropping out of a collective society okay (laughs) absolutely so so there so let's let's assume that the feelings were valid (laughs) what i don't understand is he purports to be part of that generation of the nerds who we're in that middle stage of being otaku. I mean, he's able to really discuss a game, <laughs> a dating sim, yeah. when we get down to it, down to its last detail. So, but then like, characterizing everyone as having multiple personality disorder, <laughs> and you know, I'm, I'm, I know this sounds awful, but there was also a trend before in the 2000s where people like defining themselves according to their neurodivergence because it, it, it was mm. there was a there was a time when you know that there was that your your tortured artist academic nature could be linked to your mental health issues so i'm right. also wondering if that was that that was something of the late 90s like when oprah started giving us armchair psychology like really accessible oh, yeah. armchair psychology i'm wondering if that's also an offshoot of that but like going oh. to the yeah, what, yeah. going to the original question, like, I think the answer is yes. But what do you think would be then? Let's let's be practical about this. What then would be the more accurate way to view otaku culture now? And where should we look for those answers if we don't know them? If we don't know the answer, hmm. <laughs> are we stuck with this man? Are we stuck I, with this person? I think it's too diverse to be covered by any one thing. Which is why some of the best coverage of it is like, indi- unfortunately, individual journal articles written by people researching specific situations and groups within trying to summarize all of this into one book, especially by like one middle-aged Japanese dude. It's not going to go well. <laughs> because, you know, the thing is, I did a, I did a search. So I used Google Scholar. And um, I know, right? Like, who does this? <laughs> and when you look at it and you research otaku, this book is actually referenced. It's in a lot of like indexes. indices. It's in a lot of like, it is footnoted a lot. 
Yeah, it, it, it actually is majorly cited, which is kind of wild. Yeah, it's wild. It is. <laughs> it's like when I do. Let's look at there. Let's look at his rating. Like, what is his citation rating? <laughs> but is it primarily because a bunch of non-Japanese Western scholars want to talk about otaku, and so they turn to what appears to be a Japanese expert, so they can cite that name and signal that they've read the thing that everyone else has read? Yeah, it's like he has hundreds of citations. He appears in so many, so many texts. Yeah. I mean, the, the biggest one is, oh my gosh, the other one is the... There's this other paper called The Animalization of Otaku Culture. And it's like, it gets... It's basically like... It's so cited. It's, this, is, this is insane to <laughs> yeah. me. Yeah. I'm not so, surprised, considering mm-hmm. within media studies and pop culture in general, mm-hmm. even bad scholarship and bad ideas, if it's related to what people <laughs> want to talk about, it's going to get cited all over the place. But also, mm-hmm. citing doesn't mean you support, right? Like, yeah, how many yeah. of these papers are actually ripping it apart? <laughs> I mean, that's true. <laughs> but just, just minorly citing it, you know? Yeah, like, it's like impassive. Of, if you want to mm-hmm. consult what people think about nerds in Japan, see uh, Azuma, whatever, 2001. Yeah, yeah, but that's the thing. Yeah. It's like, it's still such a... Because maybe it's by virtue of being the first or the early version of its kind... It becomes mm. then something that you're forced to contend with as an academic. Like, you yep. know, you if you're ever going to do otaku studies or whatever geek research in the future, you're going to need, you you know, I'm going to have to confront this text, which yep. already is exhausting to me because it means that before you even start with your definitions and whatever, you're going to have to like say, this is the existing definition. I now need to rebut it. I need to clear the discussion space of existing mm. like conditions, like you know, preconceived notions. And this book is not yeah. an easy book to like erase because it's no. so it's you know it's very present. And I I'm have like, a s- oh sorry yeah you go oh I have a similar issue with other. Well, I don't want to generalize, but they are all male Japanese media and pop culture studies people but uh kohichi iwabuchi is another that just constantly comes up and people are almost feeling obligated to cite whenever they talk about japanese pop culture prolific author proposed some ideas no longer accepted that all of these ideas work but you still have to cite them in some way it's kind of like this you know, tyranny of what came before you in a lot of ways, but just like a shibboleth of writing. Yeah. I love that word, by the way. That's such a beautiful word. Yeah. Yes. I think it's a good villain name, by the way. Um, (laughs) So do y'all want, can I do the thing that I I need to do? Tinfoil hat theory. Tinfoil hat. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm going to, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to present this to you. I don't even know if it's if it's like weird enough to warrant calling it a tinfoil hat, but we'll we'll see. We'll be the judge of that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so basically, what I want to do is, unlike the third chapter of this book, I'd like to see if I can 
resurrect some portion of this argument, a small portion of this argument and, and do something useful with it. So what I want to do is try and take this database concept, which I think is actually pretty, potentially pretty remarkable. Like I'm not, I, I don't hate the database thing. Mm. Um, and I'd like to see if I can map it onto tabletop role-playing games. Perhaps you've heard of them. So <laughs> here's what I got. <clears throat> here's what I got. So we can, we can think of like the database in, in this conception as like a genre, basically. It's a big collection of tropes in a genre. So if I want to play medieval fantasy, then the database is all the shit about medieval fantasy that we could do in play, right? And so play then becomes the act of like reading up these tropes out of the database. So far, so good. Um, right. But the thing is, that's not that's not real. That's not true. Because we don't actually, us as players, we don't actually have access to all the tropes of medieval fantasy. We just have the ones that are in our heads, right? So um, that helps us answer the question, like, what's the book in this schema? What's the game book? What role is it serving? And I think we can conceive of it as like an extra brain, right? It's another head that is full of things that genre things that we don't already know. So it sort of adds things to our instantaneous database, right? And I think that's a relatively functional and maybe even a good conception of like how we can think about this. But, but <laughs> I think it's, um, I think there's another like more, um, I think there's another way of, of arranging this schema that's like more real to the way people actually think of how games work. So I'm going to give you this one. So like, I think it's schema two, which is what I'm calling it in my head. The genre actually is the database, right? So it's not what's in our heads. It's the actual genre is the database because in schema two, the game designer is the one reading up tropes from the database and then interpreting them into a game book. Now that's that's attractive as a as a model, I think, because it looks like I don't know, it looks like writing a light novel or anything else, right? Mm. Um but we we I think we run into issues, at least for me, <clears throat> we run into issues with this particular schema because we have to ask like, okay, well then what's the player doing? And when when all of that interpretive work has already been done, which in schema one would have been play, right? So when that's already been done <laughs> to some large degree by the game designer, um, it seems like the player is reduced, like, you know, those, those diagrams, they're on page like 33 or oh, something. Oh yeah, yeah. It, the player just becomes that eyeball on the right hand side, you know, like a spectator right. to whatever the game book is interested in in doing right so the game book becomes this like i don't know a statuette or like a vinyl a, a, a vinyl statuette is that you know a, it's a funko pop right yeah. um so yeah you're with me <laughs> so like I'm in the here, second yeah. schema, so like in the second schema the the player then is like necessarily less active and participatory in in the specifically in the reading up of elements out of the database right 
um, they could take an active role, right? And this is something we talk about sometimes when we talk about games, where it's like, well, players don't have to do what's written in the book. That's part of what's great about t- tabletop RPGs is they can do, they can break rules and they can make house rules, they can do whatever else. And it's like, yes, but when they do that in this specific schema, they're becoming a game designer, right? <laughs> right? They're like mm-hmm. doing, they're stepping out of their lane and they're becoming the game designer. And, and for me, any schema that posits that that particular action of reading up and curating your own experience and those things, anything that posits that that is not itself the central fundamental act of play and like what it means to be a player feels really sad and broken to me. Um, So that's, that's me. (laughs) That's me sort of trying to map this on there. And I think that schema one is like potentially a useful way of conceiving of not only like what game books are for and what they do, but like how, how we can put them together more effectively and more, more better. Mm. Does that, does that scan at all? I see what you're saying, but then I think there's also possibilities within that and that it's almost like nested moments of reading up. So like the initial producing of the book, which I think this guy would argue is the creation of a small narrative mm-hmm. um, is yeah, drawing on the database. But I think using that book itself is also a form of using the database, especially for players, if whether they're familiar or not. I think just unfamiliar players are working with a smaller database in the first place. And when you're going and being more creative, you're then drawing on a larger database. I don't know if any of that makes sense, but no, I think mm-hmm. I get you. And I think maybe, maybe the, like it's the never just a straightforward database to for sure. I think really potentially what's happening is in make, in, in putting a game book together. Um, we are in some ways uh, reading up and making a small narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also that small narrative must serve as a database in play, right? And so yeah. we're sort of standing on this limb. And the question becomes, for the creator, right? Because this is me always going back to some kind of instrumental claim. The question becomes, um, when and how do we make do that code switching, right? And I think ultimately for me as a person, both on the like creating creative side and the reading, like the customer side, I think ultimately I want that book to function well as a database in play much more than I want it to be a functional small narrative. Okay. If you catch me. So like, yeah. I was wondering what this reminded of now all of this time. And it just hit me like this book claims essentially <laughs> that geekery, otaku culture, whatever, draws on some kind of Akashic record of geek. <laughs> it's almost like it is a, I think it, it's, I agree with you, Jared, in that like genre is, is the record in that sense. Mm. But then I think what we now need to challenge ourselves with is how does one, um, does it feel like a database because we are simply mashing old things and creating new things out of it? which now become shadows of their previous self, which is like something he premised earlier on in the book. Or is there an actual like 
chance to foment something new. And I think maybe that's why the, the thinking is a little bit lazy because it slipped into this whole notion of there's nothing going to ever be new again. It's always going to be some element, moe or otherwise, of A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, G, you know, so on. And so I guess to challenge this writer, one needs to challenge the notion that, well, you know, the database is incomplete. And if anything, we can create different areas that store different things, which people can eventually access. Assuming yeah, that think, the data, database analogy is even accurate. I think the ultimate weakness of this as a methodological approach in the way I sort of just tried to lay out is that in that ultimately the product, right? The small narrative in the sort of lingo of the book is by its own, by, by the categories of the book itself, completely unimportant and valueless, mm. <laughs> right? It doesn't even get you back to the database, right? It's not, you can't get to the database through the small narratives in, in the terms of the book. So like, and that's the only thing that matters is that database, right? right. So, so the, I think that's a true weakness. And I think it's for the reason you're, for the reasons you're pointing at Mahar, where um, these things feel like they can't produce anything new which we know from experience is not the case, at least in, for, in, in RPGs, which yeah. is why I think, interestingly, it's much more compelling to look at something like, and forgive me, Emma, you, you weren't here for this season, but something like what Laycock was on about with the sort of liminoidal nature of those kind of liminal rituals mm -hmm. um, yeah. and sort of using that as a, as an interpretive lens for, for looking at games instead, because that inherently points to the, the creative capacity. Yeah. Um, yeah. Those yeah. games. And I think it's otherwise very similar. Like it's, it's filling a very similar function to what we're sort of using these, this yeah. um, idea to talk about. I mean, seriously um, though. Yeah. 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 Go. Oh, I, I think I ranted about this pretty hard early on and that I don't like the assumption that, value only exists in things that are novel and unique because as an archaeologist, I'm here to tell everyone that just about nothing, especially at this day and age is novel or unique because we're always building on what came before. And I don't like within this book, the assumption that, that things that are constructed out of little bits and pieces of pre-existing stuff are somehow lesser than because mm. like what came before that and what came before that and what came before that, I would really like him to indicate something that is 100% totally new and unique within the traditional media and arts that he's propping up as better than or somehow more true. And, and it's like, am I not able to be delighted? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like It doesn't it is lose meaning. It's not <laughs> less valuable. Yeah. People are very good at producing meaning and attachment and feeling out of all of these things. So he like answered it. It's meta level girl games. Like <laughs> it's, it's unique mechanisms and, yeah. and character traits within dating games. Yeah. I also don't know why they bother to translate a tome, because I assume that's the word and not just like leave it untranslated and put a note. Yeah. Because girl I mean, is an awkward fucking phrase. 
<laughs> like, it just sounds like it's a game in which you like stare at a 3D model of a woman. Like it makes it sound. It's creepy. like you. It's like you went to McDonald's and they put the wrong toy in your Happy Meal. <laughs> I really, I think it, it's a testament to this to this book that the podcast for this season, so to speak, ends the same way this book ends, which is rather like. I'm exhausted. <laughs> it's like I'm so yeah. I'm so emotionally drained. I just yeah, when I got to one of the last paragraphs because you know the intro is all about like oh there's this fear in Japan about otaku and possible connections to like om shinrikyo. And he's like kind of proposing like he's there here to tell you why that's not a thing or it's fine. And then one of the last sentences says that, oh, this girl game that I played where you're searching for your capital F father, but you don't actually end up finding him and you just end up in a magical world of swords and magic <laughs> is the psychology that supported Om Shinrikyo. I was like, what? Did I seriously read all of those pages just to come all the way back around for you to compare otaku to this? Seriously fucked up cult. Great, thanks. I mean, I mean, really. <laughs> what a use of my time. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, now I feel like I have to apologize to Emma. Emma, I'm no, sorry not we at made all. you read so, this book. <laughs> yeah, this is good. I needed to read this because I, I am interested well, to, to see. No, I'm not going to cite it. But now I can justify why I don't cite it. Excellent. Perfect. <laughs> and there's a lot of thought floating around out there in both games and in academia that scholars or creatives or perspectives from particular locations are more accurate or better to look at. And I'm sure if there was a born and raised in Japan man who was doing the same thing as me in the games industry, he would be given way more credit than I am as a diaspora femme. And to be able to look at things like this and be like, this was written by a Japanese guy. And to see that it doesn't actually provide the kind of insight I was hoping, and it doesn't even offer nuance or subtlety on the topic. It's like, hmm. ah, yes, <laughs> here we are. <laughs> and I mean, like yeah. a little reminder that like a middle-aged Japanese man is no different than a middle-aged white guy in the U.S. in a lot of ways. Because they are like social, political, dominant group within the society. And so in a lot of ways, don't have to think in subtle and nuanced terms. So I'm glad I read this just so I know what's in it in case it ever comes up in my life again. (laughs) (laughs) Could you imagine? No need to apologize. I had a great time doing this, by the way. (laughs) It was so nice having you on. I mean, seriously, Emma is at Stark starchiologist oh god yeah sorry starchiologist there we go starch and archaeologist (laughs) i'm so sorry english is my second language and i'm really feeling it today well it's not really (laughs) a real word i jammed two words together i should be a tradition of japanese (laughs) i should be able to make phonemes happen um (laughs) (laughs) you know what before we end uh this this uh thing i think we're gonna have to do a palate cleanser friendos um sure. like 
I need to think of something fun. I know several really good books on liturgical theology, which is my thing right now. So if you want to do one of those for next season, hit me up. Uh, (laughs) Okay. So Jared, you know that in my school, everyone has to have a, everyone in my school basically has a minor in theology. Oh yeah. Yeah. Because we have something called a core curriculum. Okay. Sure. It's like, I told you, everyone has to have like, X number of classes in theology and X number of classes in philosophy. So it creates a very smug kind of creature. I am guilty of being yeah, one of those. It's like in that regards, as a philosophy major with a religious yes. studies <laughs> <laughs> and a women's studies minor from an era yeah. where women, gender, and sexuality studies was a rare minor. Fiona, yeah. You would fit in my school so hard, but in a good way. Like, it doesn't produce monsters most of the time. Uh, but I will say I got very tired very fast. I kind of wonder sometimes why I went to school there. And then I realized, oh, yeah, because, you know, I didn't have to pay for it. But, but it was, hey, that's a good reason. Hey, that is a good reason. But I was like, oh, God, you know. Maybe but also I I'm tired just hearing about just, it. Just, yeah, exactly. But, like, you know. Now, the thing that did make me happy, which is tangentially related to this and to my true love, is that Fiona sent me and made me aware of the fact that there is a Death Note musical. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm I'm trying to wonder how that Death Note musical will fit into this author's idea of the database. Because I don't think otaku are known to be Broadway bound boys. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they would have conceived of the notion. Yeah. Because how does that I, work with the database? How does that work with the database? I mean, unless they watch Sailor Moon, because there were Sailor Moon stage shows in the 90s. I will say that. Oh, and yeah. there were musicals. Uh, there were like six Sailor Moon musicals. I mean, the rubber about. suit stuff had a lot of like, you know, live performance versions. Like at like theme parks and stuff, if I'm <laughs> recollecting correctly, I'm forgetting how to pronounce the word. It's tokusatsu or something like that. Tokusatsu, like Thank the you. the like Power Rangers and yeah, stuff like, like that. Power yeah. Rangers and like the previous generation TV stuff. That's like kind of the proto Power Rangers. Oh yeah. Sentai stuff. For that, you have the delinquent girl version of Power Rangers, the best era. Oh my goodness. I there's mean, so much. There's so wild much. Wild tokusatsu out there. <laughs> my goodness. But yeah. Now, from now on, we can always just think, what would Hiroki Azuma say about this? <laughs> I mean, seriously. Well, imagine trapping him in a room and making him watch the entire run of Power Rangers. Yeah. <laughs> what if you make him like what is that ice skating anime yuri on ice yeah i would love to see him watch yuri on ice he's really disappointed by the lack of yuri in that i'm not gonna lie (laughs) there's two yuris on it right russian yuri and japanese (laughs) yuri Oh no, we. Oh, you see, we're yeah, having a lexical okay. confusion about how two wor- words can be yeah. a false friend, where they could mean two different things. 
if only oh. there were a database that could retain all this information. <laughs> what were you talking <laughs> about? That would tell me when it's using Yuri as a name and when it's a syndicate for lesbianism. Oh! Yeah. Oh, oh. Yeah, I went into it old, no previews, and literally was just very disappointed. <laughs> you were hoping for yeah. lesbians on ice. Yeah, yeah this time it was, a, it was a name. <laughs> oh. Or they tricked you. Oh. <laughs> oh my goodness. I learn new things every day. 